Our reading for today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ashley. Um, I, this is just something I've done for 20 years, and so I got to do it. So it's Super Bowl Sunday. How many of you, by show of clapping or yelling or whatever, are Patriots fans today? Way to go, Frank. Just start dividing the congregation again. That's really cool. How many of you are for the Falcons today? Interesting. How many of you really don't care? My brothers and sisters. Yes. I, uh, NASCAR. I just love it when people really care about not caring. That is really awesome. My brother-in-law makes wings every year. That's the only reason I'm there. And my friend Jim Moreland watches all the commercials very closely. And I know that for the next two weeks, I'll have to talk to him about the commercials. So I got to watch the stupid commercials as well. Anyway, I'll eat well. Well, those of you who have been around church for any length of time uh, probably have heard this passage several times. You've heard it taught. You hear it, hear it referenced. It, it even gets... Uh, uh, ministries even get named after it. If you've ever heard of a 242 ministry at churches, they're, they're naming it after Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 42. So this is a really, really famous passage. So one of the things I want you to remember about good education, uh, I've, I've read this before and I've heard it said, uh, that doesn't necessarily make it true. It could be a lie that's just repeated over and over again, you know, false news and all that stuff. But I've heard it said that... Um, Good education is 90% being reminded of what you already know and 10% new information. And so this will be, for many of us, a good reminder. But also I'm excited about those of you who are here that this might be new to you because this is a really interesting and, and helpful passage. So um, we're going to kind of, we're going to read the passage again and just sort of pick at it. This is a six-verse passage. It is the shortest passage we'll go through during the book of Acts. Uh, and then what we'll do after that is we're, we're going to close with what I would call two takeaways, things that um, you'll get takeaways during, during the picking at the verses, but some application at the end that I think will be really helpful. And here's the big idea for today. Uh, Christians do things together and for each other because the Holy Spirit unites our heart, our heart. And, and I, I want to make sure you understand that's a singular heart there. And you'll understand why a little bit later as, as we get into it. So let me just read it one more time, and then we'll dive in. This is what Luke writes, and it's a summary paragraph. It's known as a summary paragraph. Luke inserts these summaries occasionally during the book of Acts. And they devoted themselves, they being the disciples of Jesus. So now it's more than 3,000 of them because of, that, uh, because of the Pentecost sermon. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So uh, a lot of people would say that verse 42 is sort of the thesis uh, verse for this short paragraph that we see, and then everything else is sort of unpacking that thesis. So they, the disciples, devoted themselves to the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to the prayer. Uh, a lot of people want to jump right on those four activities and, and talk about them and unpack them, and, and we'll, we'll do that. But I would argue that more important than the four activities is actually this, this uh, description that they were devoted to these four things. That's, I think, where the emphasis of this sentence comes from. They, they devoted themselves to these. Uh, th that word literally means continuously persistent and steadfast pursuit. Continuously persistent and steadfast pursuit. So they just, they were not distracted. Th their attention was not divided by anything. They, they focused in on this. It doesn't mean that they didn't have jobs and they didn't have friends and they didn't have other things that they were doing. That's not what it means. It means that their attitude and the way they lived their life and the way they did all of those things was influenced by their devotion to the gospel and these four communal things that are brought about by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in our lives. Uh, the true disciple of Christ does not simply add Christianity to their busy lives. That's, that's what a lot of people try to do. I'm really, really busy. If I can just sort of slap Christianity on this thing, maybe it'll make things a little bit better. Uh, no, that's really not what a, a disciple does. But rather, Jesus and the Holy Spirit's guidance becomes the center of their lives as they continue to do these things. It's one of the reasons for our seven core values and shared culture at Redemption Church, number two is all of life is all for Jesus. Like I said, we still work, we still play, we, we still hang out. But Christian is not the adjective in our life. Christian is not the adjective in our life. It's the noun and the verb. It, it, it's, it's the subject and the predicate of everything we do. So now you have these four activities. You have teaching, and I'll go through these very quickly. You can go deeper on your own if you want, but uh, the Greek word for teaching is literally where we get the word didactic from, and it means teaching that leads to better understanding, teaching that leads to a more fully developed understanding of the subject. In other words, in this case, it would be to, to have a better knowledge of and understanding of who God is, who he is, He's holy, and we're not. What he has done, he's given us his son to, to go to the cross so that you and I might be reconciled, saved from our sin, what he's done, and then what that means to us as we live our lives and apply it to our lives. So knowing God, knowing what he's done, and how does that change our lives existentially, permanently. So that's what the teaching means, the fellowship 
Some of you have heard this word thrown around. I remember in the 80s and 90s, the Greek word koinonia become all the rage. Everybody talked about koinonia, koinonia, okay? Well, that's the word, and it carries with it the weight of all of these things. Sharing, participating, not spectating, but participating, contributing, and partnership. The idea of linking arms and, and, and being with each other, not for each other, but with each other. And there's a big difference between being with and for. Uh, when you're for somebody, it's, frankly, it's kind of the way we treat sports in Arizona. When we're for our teams, we're for them when they're doing really well, but we're really not with them very much when they're not doing well. We sort of, Thursday night, I went to the Coyotes hockey game, and it was a home game for the Chicago Blackhawks, as it should be, but nevertheless, it was a sea of red jerseys, and so, and the Coyotes are not doing well right now, but that's, that's for, with is through thick and thin. No matter what, you're linking arms, you're saying, I don't care what happens, I'm with you. And, and that's the idea of koinonia. Uh, and then the breaking of bread. There's really two parts to this, and there always has been two parts to this, and we need to understand that. Certainly, it is communion. Um, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that we serve communion every week at Redemption Church is because it appeared that every time the early church gathered, they did the same thing. Now, that is not duplication. That's merely continuation. And there are other reasons why we serve communion every time we get together, but it's one of the reasons. And the breaking of the bread was talking about communion, but certainly it is also talking about getting together to eat. To eat. Eat, my brothers and sisters. Eat. Gee. Seems like those Christians, all they do is get together and eat. Yes, we do. And we should do it loud and proud. I think it's interesting that today is Super Bowl Sunday. And we're going to get together and we're going to eat loudly and proudly, right? Some of us anyway, I know. Okay. See, here's the thing. As Christians, we should never argue about whether or not we're going to get together and eat. But what is up for negotiation is what we're going to eat. That's the negotiation. That's where we push and pull and debate. What is it we're going to eat? Hamburgers, pizza, kale salad, whatever it is, okay? That's where the negotiation comes. But here you go. Okay, so why? Why? To what end? I mean, what is the point of this? It's been proven just for thousands of years, and now even social science research talks about this and researches it, intimacy and the effectiveness of relationships and community are often built around sharing a meal. It's an act of intimacy to share a meal. But also, here's the other reason. Sharing a meal with somebody necessarily forces you to slow down and to actually engage. And so that's why getting together to eat whether it's grazing or a full meal, whether it's coffee or you're just going out for ice cream, that slows things down so that you can actually enter into the relationship and have community. And so that's really important. And then finally, prayer. Talking to God. But it's also listening to God. I don't think we teach this enough about, about uh, prayer. You know, we, we go to prayer and we have a lot to say to God. You know, a lot of times we want to tell him how to do his job and we're unhappy about those things, but uh, it's, it, we don't quote Mother Teresa a whole lot at Redemption Church, but I remember when asked about prayer, 
um, she talked about how much she would pray and that really the vast majority of her prayer was her closing her mouth and listening to the Holy Spirit's guidance in her life, listening to God's word. And that occasionally she might have something to say to God, but really she was opening herself up to allowing God to lead her. And then here's the other thing about prayer. It's not just in solitude, but they're doing it as a community. So we pray as a community as well. Um, you saw James Journey up here. He's our, one of our percussionists. Um, on February 9th, he's leading a, a prayer service in, in here. He's, he's done this now a couple of months, and, and he wants to continue doing it. So he'll be leading a prayer service on February 9th in here. I believe it starts at 6.30. It's on our website. Um, you should, or, or at least contact Stephanie if you'd like to come to that. And by the way, let me just say this. If you've never been led in prayer by a percussionist, oh, it's really cool, okay? There's just something up, anyway, so if you're interested in that, please, please contact Stephanie. And then verse 43, and this community of believers lived in reverential amazement of all that was happening, some of which were wonders and signs. So a wonder is a supernatural event that can only be powered by God that brings awe, because it is, in fact, done and powered by God. A sign is a miracle that confirms that Jesus is God and Savior and that he is the author of life. A sign and these wonders or these miracles, all of them ultimately are pointing to God and are for God's glory, not anybody else's glory. So that's really the key to understanding signs and wonders, that for God, they're for God and his glory. There are two reasons that Christian theologians today offer for why it doesn't seem like we have as many signs and wonders and miracles today as they did during the book of Acts. Here's the first one. This movement of the Spirit at this time was uh, especially important to help kind of turbocharge the beginning of the church, this new movement. And so there were many more of these signs and wonders that were taking place then to help authenticate the authenticity of this new movement and who Jesus is. And the biggest of those signs and wonders and miracles would certainly be the resurrection, uh, that everything points back to that. And so it was to help authenticate the early movement of the new church. But here's the second reason, and this is on us. This is on us as a people. Uh, we don't have as many signs, wonders, or miracles today, the scholars say, because frankly, most of, the, most of us want them for our glory. We, we want to be exalted and lifted up. We want the benefits of the signs and the wonder. We're doing it for, we, we're asking for it for the wrong reasons. Even something very personal and very important that no doubt, and I understand, would benefit you in a great way, some sort of healing or something. Any, any, even those things, we need to understand if God does something in the midst of that, the purpose of it is to point you and everybody else to who God is and that he gets the glory for this. Very, very important. Um, many people, <clears throat> I read this recently, many people today in the church are the people who, after the feeding of the 5,000, followed Jesus for a few more days, not because he was Lord, but because they were hoping for another foot-long Subway sandwich. Wrong reason to be following Jesus. And, and again, I, I would point to something that C.S. Lewis wrote last century in The Weight of Glory. It's a fairly 
fairly well-known quote, but the, the truth of it just continues to ring loud, and we should look at it. He writes this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Oh, I'm going to pray for healing or pray for this financial problem to go away or whatever, and we think that's too big for God. Lewis is making the point that those desires are actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. It's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, here's one of the things that Lewis is saying, and he's right. We're far too easily pleased by us getting glory rather than God. That we would actually have greater joy if we would recognize that it is God who gets the glory. And I know that's hard and counterintuitive, but it's also true. And this is, this is why this movement is happening, I believe. And so now... Uh, if James were up here, I'd ask him for a drum roll because we're getting ready to do verses 44 and 45, which are commonly known as the communism verses. Yes. <laughs> We're going to talk about communism now, right? Here you go. Let me, let me just reread them for you, okay? And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. <clears throat> together, the word together there. And it appears in verse 46 as well, uh, means to have unity in mind and spirit. Have unity in mind and spirit. So when, when Luke writes that the disciples, the church, was together, it's not just that they were together physically. He's talking about something much deeper than that. That there was an, an intimacy, a vulnerability, a transparency, and a level of trust in this community that was so remarkable that people on the outside of the community, could, they didn't have to discern it. They clearly saw it. They were, they were not just together physically, but they were together spiritually and emotionally. And they were defending and advocating for each other. And those words, possessions and belongings, literally assets and everyday stuff. Assets and toothpaste. Okay, so stock, stock certificates and and baby powder, all right? So communism, is this communism? Not hardly. And here's why. This is really important to understand. The giving and sharing of these assets and possessions was voluntary. It was not mandated or compelled by any hierarchy or governance. There was never a process put in place that forced people to give or taxed people in any way, shape, or form. And if the church ever does something like this, that's a problem. It indicates that we don't trust God. That might be a problem. We've become Israel in their rebellion at that point. So, also, we should remember that when we get to Acts chapter 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Peter specifically says to Ananias, while your property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were the proceeds from the sale not at your disposal? See, in other words, there is personal property, and there's recognition by the church leaders that there is personal property, and it's at your own disposal to do what you want. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira 
is not that they withheld money, but they lied about it. That's the problem. Donald Guthrie writes this. He's a New Testament scholar. Contrary to how some have tried to manipulate this paragraph into a dictate for communism, there was never a blind rush for the Christians to rid themselves of all their possessions as if personal property was itself evil. Instead, they gave as there was need. So here's how I would say this, and this is so important for us to understand. The gospel and the Holy Spirit gladly create gladly generous hearts, not guilty and compulsive consciences. The gospel and the Holy Spirit create gladly generous hearts, not guilty and compulsive consciences. And we see this in verse 46, as a matter of fact. And day by day, attending the temple together, they were breaking bread in their homes, in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. The word generous literally means this. Sincere and undivided, not fragmented, a heart not torn between two desires. Sincere and unfragmented. It's not, un, it's not divided. It's undivided. It's a heart not torn between two desires. And their desire was plainly and simply for Jesus, the kingdom of God, the gospel, and its ethic. So an undivided heart. They all, they, each of them, the believers, had an undivided heart. And verse 47 is a summary verse of sorts. It tells us that at this time the church enjoyed the favor of the people and that many, many more were being saved. Uh, Daryl Bach, who's written a commentary on, on um, uh, the book of Acts and is probably the foremost expert in the book of Acts uh, today, and I have to admit he uh, is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is where Cody went, not me. Um, he says this, the witness of a reconciled and functioning community is often more powerful than proclamation. And that's what people were seeing here. And they were saved. People were being saved, delivered and rescued from the slavery of sin and the consequence of sin, which would be good. But, but it's interesting. A lot of people ask, why were their numbers being increased when the disciples were not devoted themselves to evangelism? They're devoting themselves to the teaching, the fellowship, the eating, the breaking of bread, and the prayer, but there's, there's no evangelism. Again, Daryl Bach says this, the draw is not necessarily what they said, but how they lived. How they li- They're making the invisible God visible. And then, when they have the opportunity, then they, they speak the truth of God boldly. So they make the invisible God visible, and then they speak the truth with great boldness. And it's not that evangelism isn't important. When we get into the rest of the New Testament, we see that it's a specific gift from the Holy Spirit, and there are people who are really gifted in evangelism, and, and, and that's true, and it's important. But there is power in these other things, the fellowship, the prayer, the breaking of bread, and the teaching, and that power is the Holy Spirit. So here's a couple of takeaways. Here's the first one. They enjoyed the favor of the people the church did. So this time of peace... And no harassment is very short-lived, if you know the story of Acts. Very short-lived. And let me just say, there's nothing better than a faith community that is truly unified in mind and spirit and can meet and do ministry while enjoying the the favor of people everywhere. But that is rare. 
the no opposition part. The no opposition part is extremely rare, and we also know from what Jesus teaches that it is not to be expected that there is going to be no opposition. It's not to be expected. He tells us just the opposite. You know, they're going to persecute you. You're going to have trouble. This is going to be hard. And the reason is because of sin. Human nature, selfishness, pride, the corrupting power of, of evil. Life is a battle. It always has been, always will be. This desire that we have for utopia is understandable, but it's also a fantasy until the new Jerusalem comes. That's the only utopia we're ever going to see. The only one. Because we can't, there is no system or philosophy or worldview that can create that here and make it sustainable because even if we created a system that works, the, the minute that human beings start to apply and use that system, sin enters the system and it won't work. This is why we have to have the gospel. We look at these six verses and we pine for this ourselves, and understandably so, but watch in these next several chapters as they unfold the the, the, the vision that we might have for ease and comfort in this dark and disturbed world is completely put to rest. Because the church begins to experience not only oppression from outside of the church, but they also begin to experience disharmony inside the church. Again, because of sin. Because of the reality of sin. Self-centered, fallen human nature is still powerful, and it's going to be disruptive until Jesus comes again. That's why it's so important for you and I now to gladly accept the gospel, to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to, to come to Jesus, to embrace Jesus. And that leads well into our second takeaway, which I want to go deeper on this word generous that was used in this passage, the word generous. So generous means an undivided heart, that it's focused in on, on one thing. It's unfragmented. It's whole heart is whole. And, and the Greek word and the Hebrew word for heart, understand, it, it literally means uh, everything that you are as a person. It's your character, it's your soul, it's who you are. And, and, and the gospel takes a divided heart and unifies it. So in order to talk about this, I want to go back to the beginning. Genesis 1. Um, God says, let us make man, human beings, in our image and after our likeness. And so then God does that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creates human beings. On the sixth day, the crowning achievement of the creation, the masterpiece of the creation, he creates human beings. And he starts with the man, Adam, we find out in Genesis 2. But right after they do that, in, in Genesis chapter 1, God says, we're going to give dominion to man. And he, he and she are going to have dominion over everything else that's been created. And that word dominion does not mean dominance. And it doesn't mean that we get to use God's resources any way we want. But literally it means loving, careful stewardship of these amazing blessings and resources that God has given you. So that you might be able to use them and build a culture of blessing for others. That's what it means. And we can do that. In Genesis 1 and 2, prior to Genesis 3, when sin enters the human condition, we can do that because we have undivided hearts. We, we have a whole heart that is focused on God. And you see that also in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, it's interesting, in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God takes the man and puts him in the garden to do what? To work it. 
So there was work before the fall. A lot of people say, well, work came as a result of the fall. No, 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 no. There was work before the fall. It's just that it was the, the work of an undivided heart in paradise with no sin. So imagine what that would be like rather than where you go to work every day, wherever that might be. Okay? Just imagine what that would be like. So he's working in the garden. And then we see in Genesis 2, 24 and 25 what the relation is like between Adam and Eve. It's pure and perfect. And there is a level of intimacy that I know our broken hearts pine for and desire and hope for and wish. They had that prior to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had that. In Genesis 2.25, when it says that they were in the garden together and they were naked and they were not ashamed, certainly that means physical nudity, yes, but it also meant emotionally and spiritually. They were completely naked, totally, up. hey man, I'm an open book. No, you're not. You're still withholding. Sin causes us to withhold no matter how open of a book you might claim to be. We just do. So Genesis 3 comes along. The fall. Satan comes, and his purpose in this, when Satan comes and deceives the woman and the man and gets them to rebel against God, the one commandment that God gave them, his purpose was very simple, to divide their heart, to give them something else that they would desire and hope for. And that's been the effect of sin on our hearts, that it's divided our heart. And I think about Paul in Romans chapter 1 when he says that the reality of God is plainly evident to anybody who would just look around. The reality of God is there. Even an atheist knows deep inside their heart there is a God. There is something good. An atheist still has a moral code. There is something good, but our hearts are divided because we also are selfish and self-protective and we're hidden. Think about after <clears throat> they took the bite of the fruit, the first thing that they did, they hid themselves from each other and they hid themselves from God. So now there's hidden hiddenness. There's no more intimacy. There's no more transparency. There's no more authenticity. And here you go. There's no more loving, caring stewardship of the resources. And work becomes very hard and toilsome. And so rather than having undivided, generous hearts, we now have hearts that are filled with envy and greed. So, so rather, rather than having um, a, a good stewardship ethic, we begin to hoard. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, well, I haven't been on that show. I'm not a hoarder like that. You're hoarding something. We all do. We all hoard. We hoard money. We hoard our time. We hoard our love, we hoard our empathy, we hoard our compassion, we hoard our resources, we hoard. We just might be able to hide it better than other people and not be on a reality TV show. It would be interesting if we could do reality TV shows on the stuff that we hide, that we hoard. So we become hoarders rather than trustees and stewards. And, and rather than having a generous heart, we have a heart that's filled with envy because it's a heart that's divided. We look at what we have and we look at what's over there and because it's over there and we don't have it, we just assume it's better than what we have. Everything is better. We want to be someone else. We want to be with someone else. We want to be somewhere else. We want to be doing something else. We want to be driving something else. 
And, and so we, we're filled with envy. We have these divided hearts. And that's what those curses are about. You know, God says in response to your rebellion, here are these three curses. And he curses the adversary, Satan, and then he curses the woman. And these curses are not comprehensive, but representative of how our hearts are going to be divided from now on. He curses the woman, the whole childbirth thing, and, and the antipathy that she's going to have with her man. And then he curses the man, and it's all about how work becomes toilsome and hard. And so we have these divided hearts. And this is why Jeremiah says in his, in his um, prophecy, in, in, in Jeremiah 17, 9, he says the heart is wicked and despicable and evil above all other things. Who can understand it? And the reason we can't understand our heart is because it's divided. And we know it ought not to be that way. Why... Why wouldn't a divided heart make this world more difficult to live in? Think of the effects a divided heart has on our families, and our relationships, on marriages, on friendships, on work, certainly on work, on our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our community. But here's what the gospel does. Jesus comes and he unites our heart. He takes all that fragmented junk, that division, and he puts it back together the way it's supposed to be. He shows us what an undivided heart is all about when he goes to the cross and he sacrifices himself, not because it felt good to him, but because we would be saved and reconciled. And that undivided heart then gets given to us by the gospel and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we still have to contend with sin this side of heaven. That is true, and so there's still that battle. But now we have the Holy Spirit. We have the resurrected Christ. We have Jesus so we can live. We can actually live with an undivided heart. We can be glad and generous. And we can become a new humanity that lives out our faith in love and empathy and compassion. And that's what we are called to, Redemption Arcadia. We pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your resurrected Son, that we might have undivided hearts, that we might be glad and generous as well. We look at the book of Acts so often, and we, we desire to have what they had, and the irony is that we can and we do because we have that same Holy Spirit that was present there. So God, let us live with courage. Let us not be afraid. Let us lean into you as you embrace us with your grace and your mercy. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have